Listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning, guys. Uh, welcome to Real Life on the Palouse. Uh, I'm glad you guys are here today. Give yourselves a round of applause just for showing up. Great job. You guys did great. And also for all of you joining us online, thank you as well. Uh, my name is Logan. Like some of the elders just said, I have the amazing author or opportunity of being the youth pastor here at Real Life on the Palouse. And so that means that I get the chance to uh, pour into and teach the younger generation, and they get the chance to continually attempt to corrupt me with their immaturity, and we will see who wins. So (laughs) time will tell. But as that awesome video you just saw just said, we are in a brand new sermon series titled Asking for a Friend. The idea is very simple. Uh, There are a lot of questions that we have in life that for whatever reason, we might feel a little bit hesitant to ask. And so rather than just facing our embarrassment and coming right out and asking them, what we do is we recruit the help of an imaginary friend and we kind of dump our secondhand embarrassment onto them. So we do this all the time. Examples are like, how many Oreos are too many to eat in one sitting? Asking for a friend. Um, Wait, so Pluto, it's not a planet anymore, right? Now, I know, but I'm asking for my friend. Um, what does the other 98% in 2% milk mean? I, again, I know, but my friend was curious. <laughs> uh, we do this all the time in life, uh, but there are questions that we sometimes feel a little bit more hesitant to ask, especially when it comes to our faith. So last week, our worship pastor, Greg, he kicked off this series uh, by asking the really difficult question, is it okay to have doubts? And if you weren't here last week or you didn't join us online, I cannot encourage you guys enough. Go back, uh, watch it, check it out. It was an amazing, amazing message. And so what I want to do right off the bat is tell you guys that our goal with this series is not necessarily to answer all of these questions. I can promise you that the people that come up onto this stage are too human and too broken to actually do that. (laughs) So rather than try and answer these questions, we want to start a conversation Our goal is to open up a dialogue within safe spaces so that we can get to the bottom of all the things that God asks us to ask why about. And today, we get to ask the mother of all questions. Because when it comes to questions that we're hesitant to ask about, uh, when it comes to our relationship with God or faith, there is one that kind of sticks out more than any other. If God is good, how can bad things happen? And we talk in church all the time uh, about the goodness of God. We talk about his love, his unending mercy, his power and his strength and how he keeps on showing up in our lives day after day after day. And when you're in a, a church community, it is kind of expected that you sing praises and that you shout for joy. And if you have a reason to do that, that is amazing. That is beautiful. Keep doing those things because we need to hear you guys praising more than anything else. But sometimes uh, the goodness of God is not exactly comforting when your house just got foreclosed on. Temperature in the room just dropped a little bit. When your cancer comes back for a second, third time. When you turn on the TV and you see faces of people that are slain in drive-by shootings and you think, how can a good God let these things happen? And this question isn't exactly new. Uh, We have been asking this for thousands of years. As long as people have existed to experience pain and suffering, 
so too this question is kind of rattled around in the empty space in the back of our skulls. Even David, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, he was described as a man after God's own heart, and even he still struggled with this question. Uh, We see in the book of Psalms, in uh, chapter 22, David is crying out to God in anguish. We see starting in verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. And this frustration hasn't changed since the time of David. Uh, The frustration that some of us have with God and the lack of answers that he seems to have for us, it bleeds into our modern day world all the time. Uh, When I I first started to attempt to tackle this question, I found myself uh, looking for resources, scrambling is a better word. I found myself scrambling, (laughs) looking for resources for people that had answers, anyone that could give me a solid, just straight, here's why this happens. And as I was looking, I, I stumbled upon this, uh, this really great book. In fact, uh, you can find it in the resources section in your bulletin if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out. And it's very, a book very aptly titled, How Can a Good God Let Bad Things Happen? And it's written by a pastor by the name of Mark Tab, and he's, he goes way more in depth than I will here today. So if this question is something that you're still itching with and it's something that you want to dive into, I'd encourage you, go out, get his book, read it. It's, it's really, really great. But I found that uh, the anger and the frustration that we have with this question uh, is so prevalent in our world that it couldn't even stop itself in showing up in how this book got into my hands. So I found this book, I ordered it online, and when it showed up uh, to our offices, lo and behold, uh, some postal worker decided that they were going to put the packing label over a very particular word. I think we have a picture of it as well, actually. How can a postal stamp God let bad things happen. And I can just imagine some Amazon worker who maybe has had a really rough go of it in life and they see this book coming through their line and they go, good God, no, 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 not on my watch. And they slap a postal stamp over it. And I got that and I thought, wow, that is very telling of the world that we live in right now. And so everyone is asking this question. Everyone. And in his book, uh, Tab tries to walk through this incredibly difficult topic through the lens of a lesser-known biblical character by the name of Job. It's a great book. Uh, if you've never gotten the chance to read it, let me give you a recap. Book of Job, found in the Old Testament, and right off the bat, we are given the glimpse into the life of a fair and honest guy. In short, Job, Job was just a good guy. He was a really, really good guy. He was upright in the Lord. He, he was blameless in the way that he lived. Job was a cool dude. And he was a good, good guy. Uh, And this isn't my opinion. Uh, The text literally says this. In verse 2, it describes him as a man who feared God and shunned evil. That's the second verse in the whole book. They want to really establish. Job's pretty swell. He's a cool guy. And so after we learn about Job in the very beginning, uh, the the whole book uh, kind of like changes scenes and we find ourselves um, looking into like a very interesting gathering of entities. And so in the first chapter, we read that angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and they all show up to, I don't know, praise, sing. They all show up before God, and it says, in the middle of this gathering, who shows up but Satan, the one who opposes. He just shows up like a cat that drags something dead from the outside, and he walks in, and God sees him from a distance, and God goes, yo, Satan, have you seen my guy, Job? Uh, Job, there's no other guy like him. 
He fears me. He keeps my commands. He is upright. He is just. He is caring. Job is a good guy. And Satan fires right back at God. And he says, you know, God, uh, I have a feeling that the only reason that Job is such a good guy is because you have just showered him with a million blessings. And he looks at God and he says, why don't you let me mess with Job a little bit and let me maybe wreck some of his life and then we'll see if he still sings your praises. And so what follows after this conversation is a montage of despair as Job loses everything. And I mean like everything. Uh, His servants and livestock are slaughtered. His possessions are burned and robbed. A storm comes through and it destroys his house and kills all 10 of his children with it. And what Job doesn't know as he's sitting there in this pain is that all of this has seemingly happened on the whims of some kind of cosmic bet that he doesn't get the chance to see. And the surprising thing is that even in the midst of all of this, uh, Job still sings God's praises. He doesn't curse God. In fact, he's, he's actually still worshiping him. And so Satan sees this and he goes, no, no, no. And he shows up for round two and he takes what little Job has left and an affliction overtakes his body And he finds himself sitting in the dust and he's covered in boils and he has nothing. So by the time the second chapter rolls around, that's right, that's only the first chapter in the book. By the time the the second chapter rolls around, uh, Job's only remaining family member shows up, his wife. uh, And she's a little bit angry. We find in chapter two, it says, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And I'm assuming like, a, like she spit at him probably after that too. And he replies, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And so in Tab's book, uh, the central theme of everything that he writes about is centered on this one question that Job asks. Should we accept good from God, but not also trouble? And that question is easy to, answer, or easy to ask, but it's really infuriating to try and answer. And so we're going to come back to Job in a bit, but the very first thing we have to do uh, is we have to address something, and it's the elephant in the room. And there's a very large elephant in this room. If you can relate to Job in any way, if you have dealt with pain and suffering and loss on a massive scale, or even if you just had minor inconveniences of pain and heartache thrown upon your life, nothing I'm going to say today is going to take your hurt away. I just can't. It's not possible. And for a lot of you guys, I'm going to be honest. You might not like this message. You may, depending on where you're at, you may even find it insensitive. And that's because there are, there are two sides to this conversation. There's the intellectual side and there's the emotional side. Because we can... You know, we can speculate about things intellectually all day long, but when push comes to shove, you can't change the way you feel about something that happens to you. We can rationalize and intellectualize all day, but our feelings are still going to be there. And so the best solution that I found is something that uh, I tell my students all the time that I want to invite you guys to join me with today, is to think of your emotions and your feelings like a toddler in a car. You can't let it drive, but you also can't put it in the trunk. (laughs) Over the last two weeks, I have wrestled with this and I have had to pull my emotions out of the driver's seat several times. I've pointed angry fingers at God in judgment. I've asked questions that honestly, uh, I have no right to ask him. And so if you have come here today 
and you're planning on letting your feelings towards the status of the world or your own circumstances be your God and your king, and you are planning on putting God on trial, you are not going to like this conversation. But you, you can't let your emotions drive the car, but you also can't just shove them away and, and pack them in the trunk. Trust me, I, I tried it. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, I found myself, after I was done yelling accusations at God, I found myself taking all the hurt in my life and the pain that I see in the world, and I tried to shove it in this tiny little box and push it as far away as I possibly could. But I found that all that really did was make me callous and uncaring. And so on the flip side, if you plan on taking all of the empathy and the compassion out of this conversation and the pain that we experience in this life, and you are planning on taking this question and looking at it like a germ in a Petri dish, you are not going to find any answers at least none that are comforting to you or helpful in any way. So instead, what I ask you guys to do, as I have had to do, is to trust God and lean in, even if it may be a little bit uncomfortable. So when we uh, we first introduced the idea of this sermon series, we knew that we had to ask this question. I mean, a sermon series called Asking for a Friend, where we tackle really hard-hitting questions in our faith. How could we not tackle this question, you know, right? And very idiotically, and honestly a little bit arrogantly, uh, I found myself sitting in our, our teaching team room and going, oh yeah, I got this one. Let me, let me take it. I know the answer to this. I wrote a paper on this in college. I can do this. <laughs> and I was convinced that I knew why a good God would let bad things happen. And that reason was in the form of a 10-page research paper that I had done when I was 18 in an introductory theology course in Bible college. <laughs> uh, there was a couple things wrong with that, though. Once, uh, once I'd grabbed onto this topic for, for myself, I went back and I found that paper on an old flash drive, and I noticed a couple things. Uh, very first, uh, it was not a 10-page paper. It was six, five and a half at a stretch, honestly. Um, it was riddled in typos and logical errors that kind of bordered on blasphemy, and the icing on the cake, I only got a D-plus on it. <laughs> so why does a good God let bad things happen? I don't know. (laughs) And nobody knows. Because we're not God. And if you expected the youth pastor to show up today and tie this thousand-year-old question in a nice little bow in half an hour, I hate to break it to you, but you will leave disappointed today. (laughs) So rather than trying to slap Band-Aids on questions that we don't have the answers to, let's talk about what we do know. And in order to do that, we have to go back to the very, very beginning. So in Genesis 1, we see that God makes a perfect world, and then we see that he makes mankind uh, in what he calls, the phrase called imago Dei, it means he makes us in his image. And then he takes these people, and he has one simple instruction for them. We find this in Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. It says, "The the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That was it. One rule. One single regulation that God put on over over this situation. And it sounds easy, but uh, if you have read this story, you kind of know where it goes from here. The serpent shows up, and he comes to Eve, and he stirs up all sorts of doubts within her, and then her and her husband partake in the only thing that God told them not to. And because of that, 
uh, it says that not only was the serpent cursed, but the very earth itself. And in that moment, death enters the scene for the first time in human history. God made a perfect world, but he let us make choices within it. And they made a bad decision, and it sent into motion the world that we have now. And so this is where uh, ideas like original sin and total depravity and these other really big, scary theological terms come into the conversation. I'm not going to tackle any of those today because one, I don't really think they're super helpful for this conversation, and two, I am not smart enough to explain them to you. And I don't think that they're helpful, this conversation, so the only thing that we really need to know for certain right now is that God loved us enough to give us an opportunity to reject him. And as odd as that sounds, um, it's actually one of the most beautiful things that I can think of, even though in my mind I'm like, well, wait, that caused the whole problem. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he says it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go wrong or right. Some people think that they can imagine a creature which has free will, but no possibility of going wrong, but I can't. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely and voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. The truth is that true love cannot exist without the possibility of rejection. And reject, reject him we did. Uh, we, what we did was we looked at this beautiful world that God made and we thought, no, I, I think I can do a little bit better than that. And what we did was we put God on trial and we decided to become the arbiters and executioners of what was right and what was wrong. And in the process, we kind of ripped the reins out of God's hands. And people don't like that idea. I don't like that idea. The concept that the action of one or two people that I had nothing to do with means that I have to live in a world of hurricanes and pediatric hospitals and head-on collisions that makes me angry. And I think part of the reason that it makes me angry and probably makes you guys angry too is because we want death and destruction and evil and pain to be biased. We want to be exempt from it. We can accept that there's suffering in the world as long as it kind of keeps its distance and stays over there. But the truth is that's just not how it works. Suffering doesn't play favorites. We hear the phrase like the sin of Adam became the sin of all and we think, well, that isn't very fair because I shouldn't be punished just because of some idiot in a garden that I had nothing to do with. And we hear that this is the introduction of sin into the world and we want it to just afflict Adam. He's the one that did it, not me. Why am I being punished? The truth, as I've looked at this more and more and more, is that it's not that it's Adam and Eve's literal sin that tainted the earth or placed darkness in the hearts of men It's more like, uh, in that moment, a virus entered the immune system of the world. That one simple choice set the world into motion on a path for a rigged system 
They knocked over a domino. We are selfish because people tell us to be selfish. We are dysfunctional because our families are dysfunctional. People hurt people because they're taught to hurt people. We set the world on fire and we didn't realize we didn't actually have a fire extinguisher handy. And it wasn't the fact that the tree was there that was actually the problem. It was the fact that they thought that they knew how to do it better. And the world that we now live in is the end result. I hate to break it to you guys, but God did not breathe into creation a world of school shootings and heart disease. Human beings made this world all for ourselves. And you might hear that and you might think, okay, Logan, I can accept that. I can get that this wasn't plan A, this wasn't the way that things were supposed to be, but where is God in the middle of it? Why isn't he showing up and helping to correct this world that we made? And I think that the only thing that will bring us close to an answer is back in the book of Job. So the rest of the book uh, is laid out in a fairly basic manner. Uh, Job's wife continues to curse him a little bit and then she kind of dips off the scene. And then some of Job's friends show up uh, and they comfort him and they sit with him and they do a pretty good job until they eventually ruin it by opening their mouths. <laughs> and they say, well, Job, you must have done something. We know that God doesn't just send pain and suffering willy-nilly, so you must have done something. What sin have you done or act have you committed that God is punishing you for? And Job sat there covered in boils, nothing around, nothing around him that he owns of any possession, and he knew the answer, nothing. He didn't do anything. He was upright, he was blameless, he feared God. And so for the next 30 chapters of the book of Job, Job and his friends kind of uh, toss the proverbial blame back and forth in the form of some very dense Hebrew poetry. It's a little bit confusing if you don't know what you're getting into. But when this conversation is over, Job is still covered in boils, his house is still destroyed, and his children are still dead. And so Job says what we're all thinking. And in chapter 23, he shakes his fist at the sky and he says, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. He wants answers from God. Job wants God to come down so that he can argue and he can plead his case and for whatever reason that we are not actually ever fully explained, God grants his request. God shows up on the scene and he says, all right, Job, I'm going to give you a chance. You can ask your questions, but there's one catch. I have some questions for you first. And what follows is maybe the most terrifying passage I've ever read in all of scripture. Chapter 38 it says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. I cannot think of anything more terrifying than the God of the universe coming out and saying, brace yourself like a man. Square up, Job. You want to do this? Let's do this. <laughs> and what follows is four entire chapters of God just rapid-firing questions at Job, one after the other after the other, and they culminate and build into this final point of, did you make this world? Can you even begin to comprehend the vastness of my wisdom and my knowledge? 
It's actually a really beautiful piece of scripture. When you go home today, crack open the last four chapters of Job, read them. It's, it's really beautiful. Uh, my, my very favorite part in all of it is, uh, again, in chapter 38, God gets a little bit snappy with Job. He says, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light and where does the darkness reside? Can you take them to their place? Do you know their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. (laughs) And God gets sarcastic with Job. And at the end of all of God's questioning, Job climbs out of the hole, I'm assuming that he hid in as God (laughs) talked to him. And he says one simple thing. We see in chapter 42, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In his book that I referenced earlier, uh, Tab has this to say about this passage. He says, Here's what surprises me about this encounter. God didn't answer even one of Job's questions, but once Job saw God in his majesty, the questions no longer mattered. He no longer needed the opportunity to present his case before the Almighty. God didn't even have to explain himself. Even though God never said one thing that Job longed to hear, simply coming face to face with the awesome power and majesty of God was enough. Job could now get up from his pile of ashes, put his regular clothes back on, and go forward with his life. He still hurt. His children were still dead. All his wealth still lay in ruins, but his life could now go on. God spoke. Job found himself in dead silence before God's power and might, and it was enough. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I still have trouble with that. And honestly, it's okay if you do too. While I was uh, preparing for this message these last couple weeks, I was challenged to take my own fears and my own worries and my own frustrations with how I saw that God was doing things and to be okay with not understanding them all. I know that this is kind of cliche, but like the road that led to this message changed, like changed me as a human being deep within my soul. And one of the wildest realizations I had uh, actually happened just this last week uh, at my life group. Uh, some, some of our friends were, were talking about this passage in the book of Proverbs. You might have heard of it. Uh, it's a very well-known proverb. It's Proverbs 3. And 5 through 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. And while I was sitting in my living room and I heard my friends Uh, talking about this and reading this, I realized something. This piece of wisdom, lean not on your own understanding, is basically just a very biblical way of saying, learn to be all all right with being a little bit confused. And ultimately, I think that's why we call our relationship with God faith. It encompasses both the goodness and love that we find in relationship with him, as well as the wrestling with things that we don't understand. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. It says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Why does a good God let bad things happen? I don't know. And I have learned and am learning to be okay with not knowing. God doesn't ask us to ask all of the right questions to get all the right answers. He's not like a sphinx in a children's book. 
Rather, what he does is he reminds us that he has a far vaster understanding of every part of the universe that we can see and every part that we can't. And what he does is he calls this knowledge his wisdom. And he asks us to trust him in the midst of it. So if you walked into this room today and you're hurting, I'm sorry. I don't know your pain. I don't know your loss. I don't know the trauma that you have endured, the grief that you have carried, or the despair that you brought in through those doors with you today. But I do know this. Well, a part of our faith is being okay with not knowing, an even greater part of it is knowing that God has not left us in the midst of it. Rather than watching us make a choice for death to enter the world and leaving us, God clothed us. And all throughout scripture, we see a picture of a God telling us over and over again, yes, this was never plan A. But I'm gonna walk with you in the middle of the hurt while we bring healing to a broken world. Rather than abandoning us the moment that we chose not to work with him, instead, God put on suffering and joined us. And ultimately, we don't have to let suffering and pain and death have the final victory because Jesus already did that on the cross. And even in that, he still gave us a choice. So for you today, that might look like a million different little things. That might mean taking that white-knuckled fist that you have had shaking at God for so long and just loosening your grip on it. For you, that might mean bending your knees into a posture of prayer and talking to God despite the anger and frustration that you may feel. For you, that might mean leaning into a community of people who have hurt and are hurting but are trusting in God in the middle of it. After all, we we really can't do this alone. There is a whole world of life groups and step studies and an entire community of people who are willing to ask really hard questions with you. And for some of you, myself included, it might mean looking at yourself in the mirror and telling yourself that it's okay to not know but to still trust. To lean not on your own understanding, to instead, when you feel too weak to stand, to lean on his powerful right hand, even if you don't know what he's doing. And for those of you today who have come in here and you feel like the weight of the world is just too much to bear, God has this to say to you. Life can hurt. Life can be hard, life can be painful and full of trouble and drenched in loss, but there is one thing that this life is not, and that is the final chapter. There is one thing it's not, and it's the final chapter. For those of us who live lives trying and striving to cling to Christ by faith, this is far from the final chapter. Romans 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For there's going to be a day where our bodies are going to fail us no more, when our eyes will see no more sorrow, where our loved ones won't be taken away from us before we can fathom a life without them. Before death doesn't have any hold over us or those that we love, but until that time comes, Christ calls us to walk with him in faith, even when we don't understand And so today we get a chance to live this out in one of the most beautiful promises that I can see, and it's something called communion. So when you came in here today, uh, you probably saw these sitting in a little emblem that's outside. If you don't have one of these, uh, there's a couple of guys walking around. Just throw your hand up. They'd they'd love to get one to you guys. 
And I'm really glad we get the chance to do this today and every Sunday, honestly, because if we're going to ask this question, we have to have a promise to lean on. We have to have something to fall back on. We have to have something to look at and go, there's hope because there is hope. So let me say it this way. Uh, The reason that we do this is because God was not okay with us suffering alone. And so what he did was he clothed himself in weakness and he joined us. And so we find this story. uh, Jesus is with his disciples. He's enjoying their company. He's breaking bread. And there's a moment uh, where he looks out at his apostles and his friends and his companions and he realizes that soon he's gonna have to bear the full weight of humanity's sin and pain and hurt and frustration. And so what he does is he offers us a promise that there's gonna be a future where there's no more suffering, there's no more hurt, and right now we get the chance to do the same. So I encourage you and remind you that even though we don't know how God does what he does or why he doesn't do it on our timetables, we get the amazing opportunity to join the God of the universe in healing a broken world, in repairing a damaged humanity, and to lean on him in the midst of it. So in 1 Corinthians, we read this. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that today. 1 Corinthians goes on. It says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whatever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that today. Uh, I want to thank you guys for being willing to wrestle with me today and to ask difficult questions. And for all you guys, I pray that your journey would not be one that is stunted by anger or fear, but that rather you would lean not on your own understanding and join the rest of us as we try and do the same. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, we come here today um, to be in your presence, to worship you, talk about how wonderful you are and how amazing you are. And it's true, you are more beautiful than we could imagine. You are more powerful than we could imagine. You, you're God. And so Lord, I pray for all of us here today who are hurting or who will hurt or who have hurt God. And as we wrestle with these big questions, that we would come to the terms and be okay with the fact that we're not you. We're not God. We're just a person. And you made us with the ability to choose. And so God, I just pray that all of us in here today, if we're wrestling with something, that before we make these big decisions, God, that you would help us to lean on you in the middle of it, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the hurt, and to not look at you out of anger and frustration and shake our fists at the sky and ask, why could you let this happen? But rather to look at you, God, and say, thank you for showing up and continuing to help me as we repair this and to lean on you in the midst of it, God. Lord, we always say, give us open hearts and open ears to hear what you have to say. And today, we, we pray that extra hard. As we leave here today, give us open hearts 
for the people around us, for the hurting that we see, for the pain of this world, and give us open ears to hear what you are calling us to do about it. We are so grateful for who you are and for what you have done and for how much bigger you are than us, God. And I pray that we would continue to wrestle and continue to be confused a little bit and to lean into you in the middle of it, God. We thank you for who you are. It's in your son's name. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.